Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. Today, we are going to continue our series in the waiting from the book of 1 Thessalonians, but we're going to take a little bit of a detour today. Um, the passage that we were going to look at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is about a doctrine and theology of work. And as many of you know, our own Pastor Rod worked in the secular workforce for, for a couple of decades. And so we really wanted to benefit from his perspective on a biblical idea of how Christians should view their work ethic. Um, but Rod is unavailable today, so you're stuck with me, unfortunately. And we're going to jump ahead here to chapter 4, the end, and then into chapter 5. And then next week, we'll return to chapter 4 and talk about a theology of work. But I'm excited about the topic that we're going to talk about today. Often, it's a controversial idea, eschatology, the study of end times. And specifically, we're going to be looking at the Lord's return. But this return of the Lord, this cataclysmic and cosmic event, it is not meant to be a controversial subject among believers. It's actually meant to be a source of joy and comfort to them. And we're going to talk about that today. The title of the message is Unintended Effect. And before we uh, dive into the message, let's pray and just ask for the Lord's help. Father, we are so thankful that you have spoken. Lord, we're so thankful for your word and that you don't leave us groping about in the dark, not knowing how we should live or how to follow you. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us preeminently through your son. And I pray today we would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened, and we would most importantly long for Jesus. Father, we thank you for your powerful Holy Spirit that is at work in us right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. No doubt all of you at some time or another have been walking through a restaurant or a store at the mall or an amusement park or whatever, and you have run into a mascot or a kid-friendly costume character. I mean, over the years, as these characters have not only become more and more ubiquitous, but their costumes have become even more elaborate. Some of them look like they stepped right out of the storybook or comics or even right off of the movie screen. These characters and mascots are often designed by whoever put them together with the intent of providing a great photo op for the family or really to the delight and enjoyment of children. But as you are all well aware, these costumed characters sometimes produce the exact opposite effect. All of us have been somewhere where we see a, a child screaming and cowering and running away from these characters. I'll confess, when I was a little kid, I had a healthy, I would say healthy, fear of these costume characters. And as a father, I've been known to shield my children from the evil clutches of Mickey Mouse and their ilk. You know what I'm saying. The idea is simply this. These costume characters, although they were meant to delight and bring joy to kids, Sometimes, unintentionally, they bring about the exact opposite effect. I mentioned this this morning because I think the idea is that that has happened with the return of Christ. Many times people think about the return of Christ and it fills them with anxiety or even a sense of dread. And this includes the people of God. Sometimes they think about Jesus coming back and the first thing that pops into their mind is, I'm not ready. That's a fearful and terrible thing. And yet, when you read the scripture, this is not the impact that the return of Jesus is meant to have on God's people. In fact, twice in our passage of scripture today, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we read these words. Look at verse number 18. 
Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, Paul has been talking about the return of Jesus, and he says that the effect that God wants to have on his people through these words is encouragement for one another. And then you skip down to chapter 5 and verse number 11, and it says again, therefore, encourage one another. In other words, the return of Christ is meant to be a source of encouragement to the people of God. This doctrine is not meant to terrify God's people. It's not meant to overwhelm them with anxiety. It is meant to be a source of comfort and joy and a way that they mutually encourage one another. But before we unpack that in a little bit more detail, let me give one word of clarification here. Notice that I said that the return of Christ is meant to be a source of encouragement to the people of God. That was intentional because those that do not know Jesus, those who have not trusted in his work on their their behalf, those who do not put their hope in him and him alone for their salvation, will experience the return of Christ in a radically different way. For instance, we read over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. At the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven, he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who do not know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. On that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and marveled at by all those who have believed. In other words, on the day of Christ's return, those who have trusted in Jesus will have one experience, and it will be experience of joy and delight and pleasure. But those who have not trusted in Jesus will experience judgment and destruction for resisting and rejecting Jesus Christ as their Lord. I want to return to this idea, which I think is the thrust of the passage, that believers should think about the return of Christ with a sense of great hope. It is to fill our hearts with a looking forward, an anticipation, not an anxiety towards the future. Which leads me to my point this morning, which is simply this. We must hope for Christ's return. We must hope for Christ's return. And as we look at 1 Thessalonians, boy, that is a hard word to say, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5, I think in this text we see at least three reasons why the return of Christ is a return of hope. And I'd like to discuss those with us this morning. Number one, the first reason why the return of Christ is a return of hope for the people of God is this, because death will be defeated when Jesus returns. Um, When we think about Christ coming back, this doctrine is meant to remind us that for those who trust in Jesus, when Jesus comes again in the clouds, that death will no more be present. It is just a temporary phenomenon for those who trust in Jesus. Apparently, there were some in Thessalonica who were under the impression that if a believer came to know the Lord and died before Jesus came back, then that was somehow the end for them. They were dead and you were never going to see them again. We see that in verse number 13 of chapter 4. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep. Asleep in these verses refers to those who have died, 
so that you do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. So Paul, wanting to free the Thessalonian believers from this hopeless idea, sets the record straight, explaining that when Christ returns, all believers, both the dead and the living, will be reunited with Jesus. Look at verse number 15. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. What a relief that must have been to the Thessalonians who no doubt had lost beloved brothers and sisters during this time, maybe some of them even because of their faith to the hostile Roman Empire at this time. And, and Paul gives them this word of comfort that, hey, even if a believer has died, when Jesus returns, he will be resurrected and meet the Lord in the air. This word remains incredibly encouraging for us today. For not only have no doubt every one of us listening to this lost a beloved brother or sister in Christ. But also on some level, all of us in our hearts have some measure of fear of death. But what this passage reminds us is this, for God's people, death never has the final word, ever. If you have trusted in Jesus, death does not win in your life. What a glorious truth as we reflect on the fact that Jesus's return shows him unequivocally as the conqueror of deaths. You see, through his death and resurrection, Jesus took the sting out of death for everyone who would put their hope in him. We read that over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And listen to this. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if you trust in Christ, death is not the end of your story. It is just the beginning of a new chapter. Now, certainly that does not mean that we are griefless when we lose a loved one. But this passage does call us to grieve with hope because as believers, we know that death always only has a limited power. You know, as a pastor, this gives me a tremendous amount of encouragement. Uh, You know, I've been in pastoral ministry for about 20 years now. And one of the privileges, and, and I don't say that lightly, is to stand at the deaths that the coffin of a beloved brother and sister in Christ and be able to offer from God's word hope and encouragement to those who are around. It is a sad and tragic thing every time we lose a dearly loved one, but it is a privilege to point us to the hope that we have in Jesus. But here's the good news. For if you're like me, there are some people that you have laid to rest that you love dearly. And the great and encouraging word from the scripture is this, you will be reunited with them because death does not have the final word in their life. We should look to the return of Jesus with hope because it reminds us that Jesus bows his knee to no one, 
Death bows its knee to Jesus. He is the conqueror of all things, of the devil and sin and death itself. And we can anticipate and long for and look forward to the return of Jesus because, as Tolkien said on that day, he will make all the sad things come untrue. What a beautiful, beautiful word of hope that the Bible gives us that we can look forward to Jesus' return because on that day, death will be defeated. But that's not the only reason that the return of Christ should give us hope. The second thing I want to highlight is this. The reason we should be hopeful at the return of Christ is because believers will be prepared. Now, that maybe sounds a little bit unusual to you, but I bring this up because I think 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 is often slightly misunderstood. Look at what this verse says. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Many people read this verse and understandably think, see, everyone will be caught off guard by the return of Jesus. And to be sure, the Bible clearly teaches, contrary to what the date setters out there believe, that the exact timing of the Lord's return is not only unknown, but unknowable. Here's what it says over in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 13. Now concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. However, this does not mean that the followers of Christ should be taken off guard by Jesus' coming. Just because we don't know exactly when it's going to happen doesn't mean that we should be surprised. In fact, that's exactly what the text says. Look at verse number three, or verse number four, I'm sorry. But brothers and sisters, you are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. In other words, I think this is a word of hope to us. You can be prepared for the coming of Christ. You really can. It's not just an aspiration. It's something that can really happen in your life. Here, Paul says that there's a way for you not to be taken off guard when Jesus returns. Yes, for some, those that do not know Jesus, it will be like a thief in the night and they will be utterly shocked at the coming of the Lord. But for others, they will not be surprised because they are children of the light. So at least in my mind, that raises the question, how do you get ready? If you can be prepared, how do you go about being prepared for the return of Jesus? Look at verse number six of our text. So then, let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake. Notice that metaphor there. And be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and the helmet of hope of salvation. This analogy of being awake or alert at the Lord's coming is it's consistently used throughout the Bible. For instance, we see it several places in the Gospels. Mark chapter 13, verse 33. Watch, be alert, for you don't know the time when he is coming. Or Luke chapter 12. If he comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn and finds them alert, blessed are those servants. In other words, alertness means living in light of Christ's returns. Or alertness means living as if Jesus will really come back. 
That's what alertness or staying awake means, and that's how we stay prepared. We live as if the return of Christ is really going to happen. It's not fiction. It's not fantasy. It's not a pipe dream of some sort. It is our reality, and we live in light of that vision. You know, our kids now, Trisha and I's kids, are old enough that we are able to leave them and kind of steal away a couple hours for, for a date. And, and usually we're not very concerned that some sort of Lord of the Fly scenario is going to happen while we're gone. Uh, usually when we go out and, and leave for a couple hours, we leave the kids with a few instructions like, hey, before you turn on the television or, or start playing any electronic devices, we, we want you to do your chores or clean up after supper or make sure your schoolwork is done. And then we go and we, we hope all things go well. Now, usually we have a great group of kids. We come home and the things that we have asked them to do are done. But on a few occasions, we have come home and found that it looked like they invited a pack of wolves for a rave over to the house and nothing has been done. Well, what happened in those moments? Well, they were acting as if our return was not real. Like we weren't really going to come back. In some ways, they doubted our word and then didn't follow through on what we said. And I think this is analogous to what Christ is calling us to do here. Living in light of God's return means that we prepare as if he is truly and really coming back. Being ready does not require some sort of secret insider knowledge. It doesn't call you to do some sort of mystical mathematic computations. You don't need some sort of Nostradamus type ability. Rather, it simply means you live every day as if the return of Christ is a real and future event. This takes the pressure off, does it not? Uh, you don't have to be a super saint to be ready for Christ's return. Uh, you don't have to have some sort of transcendent religious experience. You don't need to be a pastor or a missionary or a deacon to be ready for Christ's return. You don't need to be you don't have to be perfect. In order to be ready for Christ's return, you simply have to believe that it's real and follow the instructions that he has given us in his word. We can truly be ready for Christ's return. We don't have to sit there and bite our fingers or have white knuckles. You, regular Christian people like us, can actually be ready for the return of Christ. He's given us the instructions on how to do so, and therefore, we should look forward to the return of Jesus with hope. But there is one final and perhaps the greatest reason why the return of Jesus should fill us with hope, and it is this. Salvation will be complete. On that day, when Jesus comes back, in a very real sense, our salvation will be accomplished. You know, if you're a believer, it is completely accurate to say, I have been saved. In other words, there was a day when you put your hope in Jesus, you believed the gospel, and you on that moment became a child of the king. You have been saved. It's also appropriate to say, I am being saved today. Because once you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you, and he begins over time to work in your life. 
and change you and transform you and make you more and more like Jesus increasingly over time. Theologians call this sanctification. We become more like Christ. So in a real sense, you are being saved. But the Bible also teaches that one day we will be saved. That is, the very presence of sin in our life will be eliminated and we will see the Savior face to face and dwell with him forever. So for a believer, it is proper to say, I have been saved, I am being saved, and one day I will be saved. This future salvation, this, this future salvation, this will be saved, is inaugurated at the return of Jesus. Look again at the text, verse number nine. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Man, notice that it says that the people of God will obtain salvation. You will have it. It will be in your possession at that moment. You will have obtained the object that your soul desires, the salvation for all eternity. Look at this very simply. At Christ's return, salvation will no longer be a future hope, but a present reality. And this is a big deal. Although here in the South, we can casually throw around the words salvation or saved. Well, he's too saved or she's being so saved or whatever. We can use that vernacular, but the reality is salvation is a gift of incalculable value. You cannot overstate or overestimate the worth of eternal salvation. It is so precious. It is so great that our minds can't even fully conceive how great of a gift this is. Just listen to the words of scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. In the coming ages, it will take him that long. He might display to us the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, for our momentary light affliction. Well, what is it doing? It is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. You can't even weigh it. It's so big, it's so significant that it makes all the sufferings of this life seem like nothing. You see, salvation is a gift that we can't even get our head around. It is that great. You know, earlier this year, pre-COVID, before we were in lockdown, Trisha and I had the opportunity to travel out to Salt Lake City, Utah. The thing that's interesting about Salt Lake is when you drive down into the city, it's like the whole town is surrounded by mountains. And as people who grew up in the Midwest and have lived in the South, we just have never had like significant exposure to the mountains. So we get in our car and we'd start driving down the road and be like, oh my word, what a vista. What a view, that is breathtaking, it is beautiful. 
And then we would turn the car and we'd be driving this way. And all of a sudden we would say, oh my, that view is just as good, if not better than the one that we just looked at. And then we would turn the corner again and we would look behind us and we'd say, oh my, look at the view. And it was one right after another of splendor and grandeur and majesty. And I remember just just feeling this overwhelming sense of like, I can't get my head around this much beauty and glory. Friends, friends, that is just a whisper, a whisper compared to the thunderclap of wonder that God has in store for his people for all eternity. If God can carve the mountains with his fingers, if they are spun into the existence by the very sound of his voice, how much more does he have things beyond our comprehension, beyond our imagination for us in heaven? You don't understand, brothers and sisters. I don't understand. No human being even has the ability to understand what a great gift our salvation is. Look, sin on that day will have no more claim on you. Oh, what a wonder it will be to never sin again. You will be rid of this destructive enemy once and for all. Death will receive. The grave itself will be buried to never rise again. Your capacity for understanding will be expanded. Your knowledge of eternal things will be clarified. All of a sudden, all of the questions that have puzzled your mind that you could not understand will be answered. You will see Jesus face to face and somehow, mystically, when you do, you will instantaneously be transformed into his likeness. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds awesome. And that's just scratching the surface. When Jesus returns, when Christ comes back, God will show us what he means by Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 20. Now to him who is able to do beyond all that we ask or think, God is waiting for that day to begin to show off his glory. Should we really be surprised? Should we really be surprised that the incomprehensible God has planned an inexplicable future? Should we be surprised that a God that good and that great and that loving and that kind has things in store for us that we cannot possibly imagine, long for, yearn for the day of Christ's return because nothing on this earth compares. No trip, no vacation, no all expenses paid pass compares to the glory that God has for his people. We should all, with bated breath in one sense, be saying, I can't wait for Jesus to come back because on that day he will show us what it means to be saved. So where does this all leave us? Well, too often, I think the only time that believers talk about the return of Christ is when they want to debate about various positions surrounding the details and the timing of his coming. I'm not saying that's insignificant or unimportant, but God's primary reason for including this doctrine in scripture is to bring comfort to his people. Remember what it says in verse 18 of chapter four, encourage one another with these words. The return of Christ is meant to be a doctrine that we use to encourage one another and build one another. 
You, you see, the Thessalonians, like us, lived in a broken world where suffering and heartbreak were to be expected. Can you identify? We still live in a world that is tremendously broken. And we all experience suffering and heartbreak and disappointment all the time. So Paul wanted them, and us by extension, to regularly remind one another that Jesus would return. I think Paul maybe, if I might paraphrase, had this type of conversation in mind. I know you're hurting. I know you're struggling. I know life is difficult. I know things are challenging. I know things have not turned out like you wanted them to. I know that your heart is breaking. I know that you are bruised and battered. But oh, brother, oh, sister, Jesus is coming. Hang in there. Don't lose hope. He's really coming. He really will return. And when he does, he will set everything right. Death will be defeated. Our salvation will be complete and you will be ready for it. So hang in there, brothers and sisters. Jesus will come back. He will save us finally once and for all. We can rest in that reality because he is a trustworthy God. So gospel hope and all my discouraged, disheartened, depressed friends, hang in there. Jesus is coming. He will return. He will really return. And he will set things right. This is meant to be a source of encouragement for all of us. As the scripture said, encourage one another with these words. But don't take my word for it. Let's hear from the Savior ourselves. John chapter 14, he says this. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to a pre prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you unto myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Our Savior will come back and we will be with him forever and ever. This world is broken, and we are broken, but we can look to Jesus as the one who will fix us and fix this world and allow us to be with him for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is coming back, and I pray that we would put our hope in him when we are suffering, when we are uncertain, when we don't know what the future holds, I pray that we would hold this reality in our hearts. The Lord will return. And I pray that that would overwhelm us with hope. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So you might hear all this and say, Pastor Ryan, how, how do I begin to live with hope in the return of Christ? Let me get just two suggestions as we close out our time together today. First of all is learn about the return of Christ. Today, as you've noticed, I've mentioned several passages of Scripture that remind us that Jesus will come back. And what we're going to do is, if you're watching online right now, we're going to drop some of these in the comments with a link that will provide you all these references. We're also going to be texting these out to the Gospel Hope family. And I would encourage you this week just to pick one of these verses. Maybe write it down on a note card or a sticky note and put it somewhere that you're going to see it, on your dashboard of your car or in your mirror in your bathroom. And this week, just 
meditate on the certainty of the coming of Christ and allow that reality to fill you with hope. The second thing I would say, don't just learn of the return of Christ, but long for the return of Christ. While Jesus was here on earth, some Pharisees came and asked him about fasting and why his disciples didn't fast. And here was Jesus's answer over in Mark's gospel in chapter number two. Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. Notice verse 20 though. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them and they will fast on that day. Well, obviously Jesus had in mind here the time where he would die and rise again and ascend into heaven and kind of leave his disciples alone. We're in that time period right now. So one of the days, ways that we can long for the return of Christ is by fasting. You know, our physical hunger and longing for food is to remind us that we long for something even greater. So tomorrow, Monday, I'm going to fast from lunch. And if you would like to do that with me, just as a way to remind us that we long for Jesus' return, I invite you to do so. Gospel Hope, let's be a group of people who don't sideline the return of Christ as something unimportant or ancillary. But let's remember that the return of our Savior is meant to fill us with hope every day. Don't let this just be a topic of debate. Let it be a source of fuel for the fire of hope in your heart. Let's long for the return of Jesus together. Amen. We love you guys. Hope to see you soon.